hello, 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 and welcome to the 42nd edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and it's always a pleasure to feature luminous individuals in the world of sports and sometimes entertainment. I have to, to be able to bring some, some entertainers and, and creative artists in as well, as I'm a creative artist myself. Um, but before I introduce the wonderful gentleman that I'm about to interview, uh, make sure to check out past episodes of Where They At on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Radio and also Catropolis Radio Network as well. That's Catropolis.net, C-A-S-T-R-O-P-O-I-L-I-S.net to check out past episodes of where they add and, and all the wonderful individuals that I've been honored to speak with uh, in the world of sports. And this, this is a special edition, uh, number 42, which is a great number. And uh, this gentleman has done so much in the world of entertainment in the film industry. And he's one of the most prolific prolific filmmakers of his generation. He's been in the business for almost 50 years and he won an Academy Award in 1978 for best live action short for his film Teenage Father. And also he's directed a myriad of memorable films, films that that we know and we'll never forget, like The Devil's Advocate, Against All Odds, Dolores Claiborne, and of course, Ray, which was the biopic on the great late great Ray Charles, and that gave him an Academy Award nomination for Best Director. And he has really, uh, he's really set the tone for filmmaking uh, over the past uh, few decades. I had the honor to meet him through the great writer Jack Newfield and uh, all and his boxing parties that he would have. Everyone, everyone from all walks of life would get together and watch the great uh, sport, the sweet science of boxing. So it is my pleasure and honor to speak with the one and only Mr. Taylor Hackford on Where They At. How are you, sir? I'm great, Labate. Thanks much. Yes, indeed. Wow, pleasure, pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, and I've had a couple of creative artists on past shows, like Chuck D from Public Enemy, and also Brad from Marcellus, too. Two great friends of mine, and great to have you on for someone I, that I've known and speak spoken with. And well, it's great to it's great to be in their company. They're both great artists, and uh, and of course, uh, you know the the whole idea. You when you first invited me, I said, well, you know, you, you do sports and sportsmen you know what am i doing there but uh, even though i have an incredible love of sports and have done some films that touch on sports mm-hmm. uh, but anyway i'm happy to be here it's, it's, a, it's an honor Wow. Thank you so much, sir. And and I want to ask you about now the pandemic and everything and what has happened, of course, in the, in the film industry, but also what has happened, you know, how it's affected families as well. And uh, talk about like um, how your family have been able to deal with this pandemic personally and professionally since you and your wife, Helen Mirren, uh, Oscar uh, uh, winning actress, uh, are both in the industry. So talk about how you were able to deal with it personally and professionally with her through this well, uh, terrible time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been, a as everyone has experienced, a earthquake in one's, quote, normal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for us, uh, you know, there just has been no filming uh, until recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, rightfully so, I understand. But, you know, it's tough when you've got a certain momentum that you're used to, to, you know, being in. So it was interesting for my wife and I because, you know, we've always, and we've been married for 38 years. So we've been together a long time and the relationship has been great. But um, a lot of that time we're on, you know, different continents. We're in different states. We're, mm-hmm. we're all, you know, I'm working, she's working. We do get together. I usually try to visit her. She tries to visit me if we're working. And mm-hmm. then we have, you know, periods of time together. But, you know, <laughs> this was the first time in 38 years when we actually sat across the dinner table from each other, you know, for months and months and months at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to report that we're still speaking. Right? <laughs> once, I, once I put all the butcher knives away, you know, it was okay. <laughs> it was okay. I don't, I, need to, I don't need to know all that. I don't need to know that. I shouldn't. I shouldn't know that. <laughs> it's 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 interesting because you know when you've had a long relationship, and then all of a sudden you're saying, "Oh God, there's no relief here." Uh, we were happy that 
actually, we, we, we got along fabulous. It was an interesting time. We did things together. Um, so as difficult as the pandemic is and as tragic it is as it was for many people, um, you know, I have to say that we survived it um, in pretty good shape. And uh, you know, would I have liked not to have gone through that year <laughs> and experience what we did, I, you know, for all those we lost and, yeah. uh, you know, and several of my friends, uh, you know, it, it, of course, I would have liked to have not experienced it. But as a whole, we came through it in pretty good shape. Well, that's good. That's good. And uh, I wanted to speak with you about the film industry. Now, you know, what has the film industry learned um, when it comes to adjustments and and uh, things they have to do differently as theaters are starting to to be populated again? Like, what does the film industry uh, have learned from this and what can they do to really push forward innovation even through, you know, after this uh, period and what they learned? Well, you know, Labate, I don't know what's going to happen you know the the whole process of um the internet and the streaming services have had we're already starting to have an impact mm-hmm. on feature filmmaking and people going to movie theaters mm-hmm. and let's face it, it uh, you know the tickets prices kept going up and up and up because fewer people were going to the movies mm-hmm. so they have to make up for it one way they want their grosses to stay high so all they do is charge more for tickets which is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You charge so much for tickets, people don't go to the movies. It's too expensive. Right. So, um, you know, we were experiencing a sea change in the movie business anyway. And now with the pandemic, it's accelerated that issue. It's, excel- you know, everybody stayed home. Everybody like started streaming, you know, things on TV. So mm-hmm. what was already happening accelerated the process. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know when people are going to. Yeah, the movie theaters are open again, and the blockbusters, the big, you know, uh, uh, you know, Godzilla versus uh, King Kong. You know, those are movies that probably don't lend themselves to watching at home. You know, they're big kind <laughs> of. Tent pole extravaganzas. That's those right. are not the movies that I make. You know? <laughs> right, right. And those are movies I don't care. I want to see it in any environment, even if I was given a free ticket. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's the, the fact is those may still work in movie theaters. But the movies that I make and and the you know, the personal dramas that um, that I've made my entire career, I don't know if people are gonna go out to the movie theaters or when they do, you know, the question is. When will people feel comfortable sitting shoulder to shoulder next to somebody and in front and back of them? Uh, you know, there's a lot of paranoia that this this pandemic has generated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think we're all asking the same questions. In terms of the reality of the business, it's interesting. You know, I was president of the Directors Guild for That's two right. terms. I've been involved in the Directors Guild for a long time, still on the board. Um, and, you know, we are the kind of, we're the leaders on the set. And we care about the people we work with, all the crew members, all of those things. So the um, the Directors Guild led the a kind of industry-wide uh, consortium of people working out the protocols of how we're going to work in the future on a set. Mm-hmm. And we, we came up with it. We led the we led the, that group, and then we came up with a group of recommendations. Uh, they're difficult recommendations because, you know, you just can't go back to the way it was. That's right. And um, I'm happy to say that those protocols work. The vast majority of those protocols have to do with testing. Test, test, test. And, and different zones. The people that are working in the office or the people that are working in the shop, mm-hmm. they can go about their business and only be tested once a week, maybe twice a week. The people that are on the set have to be tested, you know, three times a week. And uh, they, but those are the people that are back of the camera. The people that are right up with the actors, because remember, actors can't wear masks, can they? That's right. Uh, they're, the, they're the front line of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So the director, the assistant director, the assistant cameraman who's taking a tape up and measuring their, their focus, mm-hmm. the hair and makeup mm-hmm. people. 
Yeah. Uh, the costume people, they have to be with the actors all the time. Mm -hmm. They can't be wearing masks all the time. So they had to be tested five times a day. And I'm probably not five times a week, five times a week, a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. every single day. Right. And uh, everybody said, oh, my God, it's going to slow things down. Yes, it did slow things down. But the good news is that it worked. Very, very few COVID cases have happened on movie sets. And so that's something you kind of do. It's like we're, we're result-oriented people, directors are, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, we, got, we have a job to do. We've got to get that job done. How do we do it in the least amount of time and that's get right. moving forward and still be creative? And I think that I'm very proud of the Guild because we led the charge. We put something in place and it's worked. So uh, that's good. Mm -hmm. Wow. Here with Taylor Hackford, Oscar winner Taylor Hackford and uh, one of the great directors of the past uh, 40 years uh, here on Where They At, the 42nd edition of Where They At. My name is Nabatel. So, uh, wow, Taylor. So now um, I wanted to ask you, it's very interesting about the Academy Awards. We had the Academy Awards recently and uh, Wow. And what was your take on the projects that were up, you know, that were nominated or won, you know, any films and or performances that really caught your eye this past year? If they were nominated, are you disappointed that those performances or, or films didn't win? No, I, I, I can't comment on that. I always feel it's, a, you know, the, the Academy Awards is uh, both a popularity contest uh, happily, a lot of very good work usually gets recognized, and that's mm -hmm. fantastic. But, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of other great work is never recognized. Yep. And uh, so it's it's always a, a double-edged sword. You know, when you're nominated, I've been nominated uh, a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, it's great. You know, you think, wow. But, you know, the, you also look at your friends and colleagues who have done really good work who didn't get nominated. And who are they? Chop liver? It's it's mm -hmm. uh, it's a, like I said, it's a it's a popularity contest. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think it's important to be able to have filmmakers be recognized, have good work be recognized. I mean, whether it's composers, whether in fact it's designers, you know, cinematographers or actors or directors, you know, it's it's important to celebrate good work. And there's always good work. You know, there always is. You find that. Uh, you know, whatever the size of the movie, and this year's crop of movies were not the biggest in the world, but there was still fantastic work done. And uh, you know, you, you you know you have your votes. You know, I mean, I I, I oftentimes have, have uh, served in a way that I uh, I like to interview directors. You know. Um, because I was head of the Directors Guild and, and I, I did a lot of uh, interviews with other filmmakers, mm -hmm. other people called me in to do things. So uh, th this year, you know, Regina King, who was a really good friend of mine, you know, yeah. she did a great film. Uh, you know, she was in Ray, in Ray, right. Her film about Miami and a right, five right, individuals, right. four individuals who were like amazing this meeting. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, the the director of uh, um, Judas and the, and the Black Messiah. Oh, Shaka King. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did a thing with Shaka, which was terrific. And I also did an interview with the writer, director of The Father. Oh, okay. Uh, which was a very interesting film. So anyway, you know, in the lead up, sometimes I'm selected to uh, to do interviews with filmmakers. And that's always interesting. I need to see the work, you know, say, will you do the interview? I said, well, I'll have to see the movie, see if the movie moves me, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, back when, you know, when I was a journalist, you know, back in the 70s, um, you know, I interviewed Huey Newton. So I spent, did a half hour wow. with Huey Newton back when I was a journalist. And so I do know something about the Panther Party. And yes. uh, so doing Shaka and, and looking at a really great piece of work that he did, I think, yes, uh, on something that most people don't have a clue about. Right. That's, you know, his, we, one of the things that's painful is, you know, in America is that people just don't pay any attention to history. They don't learn history. They don't yes. care about history. And of course, history is where it's all happened before, right? Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, yes, indeed. 
So uh, in any event, you know, I, I do these interviews and, and uh, you know, luckily those three films, uh, I, I really liked. I think all of those films had great quality. They were all recognized and that's good. Mm -hmm. Now, what did you think of the, the controversial ending? Because it's very interesting. The best picture category is always the last uh, announcement, you know? And, and, and when I saw the awards, I was like, wait a minute. Best, wait a minute, hold on one second. Best actor, best actress weren't awarded yet. What's going on? And then it, it, it was just, a, it was a very weird aura in the room when Sir Anthony Hawkins' name was, was announced for the father, speaking of the father. And Sir Anthony Hawkins is a legend, don't get me wrong. And, and for him being the oldest Oscar winner as well for best actor is, is magnificent. But um, how, I mean, that awkwardness though, of what happened at the end, what was your take on them moving well, best? Yeah. I think they made a terrible mistake. I think they made a terrible mistake. I mean, you know, oh, what we're going to do, we're going to shake things up and change things. Right. Uh, you know, from, from my point of view, and I'm married to one of the great actors in the world. Absolutely. But, you know, to do best actress, best actor, or best actor, best actress, and best picture um, is the way it should be. You know, there's too much emphasis already on actors. Oh, the actor movies only get made because certain actors are in them, and everybody celebrates actors. That's great. And and as I said, I'm I'm I love actors. I love mm -hmm. getting performances from them, and I don't begrudge them any of the fame that they get. But it's the film. You know, when all of a sudden you start to say the film is not important, let's put it third, and then we'll put the actor and the actress. I go, wait a minute. A little much. And mm -hmm. I think that, that, uh, that, frankly, I'm just telling you how I felt. I think mm -hmm. it was a very bad decision. Because you go in that tradition, it's all building to something. It's, it, it's a collaborative art form. It isn't like boxing. You know, at the end, there's not one person you're holding the hand in the air because he knocked out, you know, his opponent. Mm -hmm. It's a collaborative work that you all go together and that goes to all the technical skills, you know, the sound for people. Everybody's collaborating and putting it. And yes, the actors are important. But what you're working towards is completing the whole. And the whole is what should be the last award, mm -hmm. the best picture. Right, right. Um, so I think, I, I think whoever came up with that idea, it was a bad idea. And it was interesting, that last category, best actor, do you think maybe because Chadwick Boseman, the late great Chadwick Boseman was... Uh, Everyone expected him to win, which his performance in Ma Rainey had every element of emotion you can think about, from positive to negative, all the spectrums were touched. And and but it's interesting with him not winning. Do you think they did that because of Chadwick? Yeah, I don't. I don't know because um, who knows what goes into this. The one thing about the Academy is that it's secret votes, so they couldn't know. But it's. It smelled that they wanted to end it on a, an emotional note. Mm -hmm. Thought that Chadwick would win, so let's shake up the old tradition. Put put uh, Best Picture third in line, then we'll go Best Actress, and then we'll go Best Actor. Mm -hmm. And you know, listen, uh, I think we've got to be careful here because Anthony Hopkins' performance was brilliant. Yes, it was really brilliant. Mm -hmm. Not that, and as I said when, when we started this conversation, I always. I always hesitate talking about awards, you know, having won awards, having been nominated. I also know that great work goes unrecognized. Yes. No question about the fact that, that all those people, all those five people in their performances had done terrific, wonderful, brilliant work. Mm -hmm. However, uh, you know, to, 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 again, change things around because you want to give a quote, emotional ending to something. And then getting, by the way, dip, you know, dirt kicked in your face if you were <laughs> producers of that show. Uh -huh. It didn't work out that way. I mean, I, I don't think anybody, you know, particularly felt good about it. And Anthony Hopkins, I, I'm sure, was thrilled that he got. But, you know, he mm -hmm. even said, he was quoted today saying, I never thought I was going to win. That's right. He did a video from Wales. Yep. Mm -hmm. Whether he would have come or whether he would have not, the point is he just thought, and he's, you know, he's, he's in his 80s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and you can't travel out of England today. So I don't think we can blame him for not being in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that he didn't think there was a chance. And I think that the good thing about the Academy is that you can have a surprise. 
that the voters recognize great work. Now, you know, there's no question that Chadman's work, Chadman's work was great. Anthony's was great. You know, the voters voted. But I think that in this instance, uh, again, I think that they were making the wrong choices, the wrong decisions by saying, oh, gee, we'll, we'll get an extra tier. So they, when you play the, you know, the emotion of Chadwick not being here, it's not right. It's not right to him. It's not right to the, to the, to the category. Mm-hmm. You go the way it was traditionally. And had he won, you would have had the emotion anyway. By setting it up, you got egg in your face. Mm-hmm. Wow, no, that's true. And and uh, and it was great for Anthony Hopkins to acknowledge Chadwick Boseman, too. That was beautiful in that in his yeah. uh, speech, yeah. you know, for sure. Um, wow. So, Taylor, who a lot to talk about with you. So now, um, Santa Barbara, California, you were born and raised uh, Southern California in general. And uh, that's the 50s and the 60s when you were coming up in like such a rich era of filmmaking in Hollywood, especially with color cinema, you know, color starting to be implemented. So, um, you know, which places did you go to in Southern California that fed, you know, your passion for film as you were coming up and knowing that you wanted to be involved in, in, in this genre? Well, it's interesting, you know, um, again, uh, I, I, I grew up in a very beautiful place, Santa Barbara, California, but I grew up working class. You know, my, I, my, my mother was, I, I was, uh, you know, she was a single mother. Uh, she was a waitress. So, uh, you know, I was uh, I was definitely working class in a very beautiful place, but I was living on the wrong side of the tracks. You know, uh, the, a lot of my friends were Chicanos, you know. I mean, when I made La Bamba, I was, I was uh, right. making a film about a, a culture I knew something about because I'd grown up in their households, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I didn't, growing up, I did go to movies like everybody else went to movies, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I watched TV, uh, but I went to movies. I love movies and I love music, but I didn't really have that. There's certain filmmakers you hear about, oh, I was sick when I was young and I couldn't go out. So I, my life was in the movie theater. When I went there, I would spend all my spare time looking at the screen. You know, Scorsese talks about that. Yes, indeed. It's not my life. It, it wasn't my life. I had, I, you know, I played sports. I sang, I, I was in, uh, you know, vocal groups. I was in bands. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of stuff and I, I had a, you know, terrific school experience, but I wasn't uh, aiming at that point. Uh, I, was I in art? Yeah, I was in music mm-hmm. and I did various things, but I wasn't looking at cinema as the end all be all. That's where I'm going. That happened later. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so my time in Santa Barbara had zero to do with, with that. Although, you know, it's interesting how we all experience, you know, you go to the movie theaters, you know, you remember plots, you remember color, you remember style. Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly remember having certain films that um, influenced me. In fact, there's an interesting thing, you know, there was a great movie that Marlon, Mar- the only movie Marlon Brando ever directed. Okay. was a movie called, called One-Eyed Jacks. Okay. It was a Western uh-huh. And it was great. It was actually a very passionate, really fantastic uh, film. Um, and he was playing a, an outlaw, a guy called the Rio Kid. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Carl Malden was in the film, uh, Slim Pickens. You know, it's, anybody that hasn't seen One Eye Jacks, they should see it. Well, it clearly had an influence on me because my first son, when he was born, I named Rio. Yeah. After the character Marlon Brando played in that film. You say, wait a minute, if you weren't interested in movies, well, I just remember that that character I thought was a, and I loved the name. I loved the way the name fit, you know, the, the, the Brando character and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, I gave it to my son and then it, but he was about five or six years old starting the school. And I thought, oh God, what did I do? I gave this, this, this weird name, Rio. And so I <laughs> said, one day he came over from school and I said, listen, Rio, you know, I was, I was, uh, I don't know, I, I, I did this idea. It seemed like a good thing at the time, but if you want to change your name and he looked at me like, what are you talking about, dad? You know, I love my name. Wow. <laughs> yes, funny. There, there's, an, there's an instance where the movies did have an impact. They must have, although, you know, what, what the hell? 
Yes, indeed. Well, and Taylor, now, since you into everything, music, sports, films, like those are my three passions right there growing up myself, you know, for sure. Yeah. Um, and now who were the influential figures that shaped who you became as an artist? I think, you know, it's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, uh, I remember John Ford movies. The Searchers. I saw The Searchers in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, again, these are Westerns. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Yep. Um, you know, I saw other movies that Howard Hawks did, that Raoul Walsh did, you know, that, that different, different directors had done. When I went to college, by the way, that's where I really got into film. I got into film mm -hmm. in a big way. But growing up, you know, you think about those movies that you remember, and uh and 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 some musicals you know and and a certain oh, number yeah. of musicals that that i you know since i sang i liked mm -hmm. and i didn't feel that that was a genre that was always interesting to me even though a lot of my friends would go oh musicals you want to see a musical i said yeah i dig that because they're singing and it's <laughs> it's nice but i think i think that personalities you know i think it's more like the personalities that uh you know that in impacted me growing up mm -hmm. um that therefore then played out later you know in my yes. life yes. you know I, I ended up by um you know making a film about ray charles mm -hmm. uh, ray charles right. had a huge impact on me musically you know when you hear somebody you know Ray Charles' culture, very different than mine. I grew up white in Santa Barbara. He goes up black in Georgia, right? Mm -hmm. But there's there's a, a a passion. There is a sensitivity. There's a spirituality that he communicated through his music that I felt. Yes. Chuck Berry. I made a documentary mm -hmm. about Chuck Berry. That's right. Chuck Berry was my guy. Hell, hell, rock and roll. I remember seeing that yeah, as a yeah. kid. <laughs> All of those people that created rock and roll, they were all great. You know, I mean, Little Richard, I knew Little Richard, fantastic. Bo Diddley, you know, mm -hmm. Jerry Lewis, um, you know, all those people. But Chuck Berry was by far the most talented of all of them. He was the first great songwriter. Mm -hmm. You know, listen, you know, he never gave himself enough credit for his songwriting. But if you really think about it, you know, and not think about it, because I heard them say it. Bob Dylan, there would not be the Bob Dylan. There would be no John Lennon. There would That's be right. no Prince. No Stones, no Rolling Stones, none. Mm -hmm. All those people said, and Prince told me that himself, you know, without Chuck Berry, there would be nobody there. I mean, you know, when you listen to Too Much Monkey Business, it's the predecessor of rap. You know, Chuck Berry did it all. So uh, later on, I did a, a documentary about him. So those, those influences on your life, Mm -hmm. that means something to you and stick with you. It wasn't like they were filmmakers and I remember, but they, they did motivate me at a future point in my life to deal with them in my own films. That's right. And when, when uh, we were Kings, right. Muhammad Ali, you know, when you involved in that too, as well. So. Well, I was, that was my film. I mean, I, I mean, it's, I hate to say it because Leon Gass just died, but the film that was released was my film. You know, I cut it. I had final cut of it. I did all the interviews. I put all, you know, Leon had shot it 10 years before, but, you know, I didn't want to take his credit. So, you know, mm -hmm. there it was. He got up and received the Academy Award, didn't even mention my name. But it says a film by both of us on it. But the fact is, the reason I wanted to do it, because of any figure in my generation who really deserved the term movie star or just star, it was mm -hmm. Muhammad Ali. Yes. Come on. He yeah. was it, you know, and, and, uh, you know, he had it all. He, you know, he was great looking. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly talented. He was really smart and he mm -hmm. could handle himself. And I don't mean handle himself in the ring, although he obviously could, he could handle himself right. in front of the microphone and in front of the camera. That's he was right. brilliant. just brilliant. And, you know, to me, that was the thing I got presented this film that had been never finished, had been shot as a concert film. And I saw it, it was a bunch of, you know, black acts going to Africa to, to perform. Oh, so power, so power, the, yeah. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought that's great, but that's not what this film should be. So I took it on and I, I re completely reorganized that film into a film about Muhammad Ali, because I said, this is a guy 
that deserves to be celebrated. You know, mm -hmm. I had seen him once. I, I met him a couple of times, two or three times. On, I, the, but the first time, and I didn't even meet him. I just saw him. I was work. I was at the Coliseum on a Saturday, and uh, we we were. I went to USC, and and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, I was there doing something. And I looked, and in the in the in the, in the background, there was this swarm of humanity just. You couldn't, you didn't know what it was. All you saw was that it was coming towards you. And there was all this movement. And as it got closer, I realized what it was. It was Muhammad Ali walking in the Coliseum mm -hmm. up on the stairs on the, in the, um, the rotunda. Right. And there were about 35 to 50 black kids all around him. They were, they were, they were so excited. They were wow. jumping off the ground. So from a distance, you couldn't see anything. You just saw movement. And then as you got close, you realized Ali was just walking by. And these kids, this was the real deal. This was like the greatest hero of a generation that mm -hmm. they were able to see and touch. And he was just cool. He was there with them. And he walked through. And I went, I don't think I've ever seen that much excitement in my life. Yes, uh, indeed. So, you know, later, later when, uh, uh, and this is before uh, when we were kings, I, um, I was in. Philadelphia, meeting with Gamble and Huff. You know who they were? Of course, the duo. Yeah, yeah Philadelphia yeah, yeah, International. Yeah. Nothing like it. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. So I was meeting there with them, and there was a big uh, uh, event uh, at, at the, uh, I don't know what it is, some arena in, in Philly, where they were getting an award, Gamble and Huff getting an award. Mm -hmm. And I went and... Was it uh, the Blue Horizon at all, maybe? I, I don't, well, I don't know. Okay. Because that's it, it was a it was a big kind of celebration of heroes from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Ali was there, mm -hmm. and uh, I did get introduced to him there. But it was late in his life, late in his you know when when the 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 uh, yeah, Parkinson's, Parkinson's was really, and you know he did you know he was I knew he was there in here, but he, his body was shaking. He shook my hand, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I walked away. And I started crying. You know, because this guy was to me the invincible. This guy was to me the, just this, as I already told you, the greatest, the greatest star of, of my generation. Mm -hmm. And I hated seeing him, you know, diminished. So when I was doing when we were kings, um, there was all this pressure from the producer and from even Leon said, you know, we should we should put Ali in now, you know, so we can see it. It'll be good to get a tear. And I said, no fucking way uh yeah. honestly i want to make this a celebration of ali a celebration of ali at his peak at his best you know we're not just you know yeah he was maybe a, a, a stronger fighter younger but when he beat foreman that was called the combination of brain and brawn mm -hmm. combination of understanding because it's a sweet sport people don't understand that it's it's this that wins That's a right. fight. That's right. It's strategy. Hard, heart's important, but it's this that wins a fight. Mm -hmm. You got to mm -hmm. have the heart and the head, mm -hmm. and that that of all those fights, that fight where he did the Robodope is so brilliant. Yes. And one of the other reasons that I wanted to make when we were kings was that I wanted to make it for women, because you know when you love the fights, when you love the game, you love the sweet sport. Women go, oh God, it's so terrible. It's an ugly part of masculinity. You know, it's just terrible stuff. And I, I said, no, you know, I, I'm going to make this movie, and I want you to see it at the end because they did. They came out of the movie and they went, God. That guy didn't win it because he was the stronger of the two. Foreman was clearly the stronger of the two. He did it because he outsmarted the bear. That's right. He outsmarted him. If Foreman was raw, Foreman was still raw at that, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. exactly. exactly. He got wise later. Mm -hmm. But I think that that the, one of the things that I was most proud of with, with about, uh, about when we were kings was the fact that it changed people's minds about boxing. They did understand more about what really goes into making a champion. Wow, and I had the honor to feature George Foreman on the eighth episode of Where They At. And, and he, you know, even though, even though it's still a, a harsh memory for him, you know, it's still like he loves talking about it because it's something that changed him, his perception and everything. And that's what he ended up retiring a, f a couple years later. And then, then the rest was history. Found God, found his faith, and the rest was history. Oh, and came back, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's right. I think 
I think that um, the other thing that was interesting about that is, and, and I, there was a lot of original footage, which I was able to use. I shot all the interviews with Plimpton and, and Mailer and Spike mm -hmm. Lee and uh, all this, you know, I mean, uh, I, I had a friend named Malik Bowens, uh, Malik Babayoyo, mm -hmm. who was a man from a black man from Mali who had been part of Peter Brooks acting company. Uh -huh. And I put him in the movie because I, I needed him to speak for Africans. I mean, Leon went to, went to Zaire at that time, never talked to one black man, never talked to anybody, you know, except he, the people that were on the film, but mm -hmm. Africans, they were void. And I said, you don't understand. Let's talk about what, you know, you know, Bumbaya means. And, and, and the whole thing that Ali, here's a, a Ali, much lighter than George Foreman, who's, who looks darker, looks more African. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about the color of your skin. It's about capturing the spirit of Africa. And Ali understood how to do that. That's right. You know, so I, I And I also what he stood for, what he stood for, lost his career. What he stood for is such a worldwide figure. Absolutely. I mean, it was, there was so many things in that film that I thought were uh, illustrative and very dramatic. And of course, uh, it won the Academy Award and, it was my film, and I didn't get to get up and receive the award because I had generously not taken a credit, or I took a producer credit. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that uh, that process of being involved, what I really made that film for was that so my two sons uh, would actually understand who the greatest star of my generation was. That's they funny. couldn't have known. They were too young. Mm -hmm. And so when they saw the film, they, got, they, they understood well, no, that's deep. Here with the great Taylor Hackford, one of the illustrious filmmakers of his generation, uh, 42nd edition of Where They At. My name is Nabat Taos. And, and it's so funny, Taylor, like I remember Customato said to, to, to uh, Muhammad Ali, he said, listen, the first right hand you throw, you have to throw it with conviction to let George know that you have power in that hand. That was the thing. That and you notice the first first thirty seconds of fight, Ali threw a beautiful right straight right hand that that buzz Foreman. You could tell or Foreman was shocked, but yeah. that it had some sting to it <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I, think, I think he he did understand that he was not going to take Foreman out in the first or second rounds. Exactly. Now, just just give him a little tap just to show him mm -hmm. the strategy. Let him punch himself out. And then, you know, to have enough left in the gas tank to come out and take him out. I mean, that's, you know, Ali was, that's the thing that's so great. You realize that he was, by that time, a real veterano. He really had done it. He spent the time. He knew, you know, when he was a kid, he was brilliant, just brilliant. And, you know, he did knock out Sonny Liston. All that stuff about, you know, the fight being thrown bullshit. You know, he, he did surprise him. But, but the fact is, by this time, he wasn't as powerful as he was when he was 21, 22, but he was much smarter here. That's right. Absolutely. And, uh, and wow. And, and, and Taylor, now you, you said you were a journalist and you were a documentarian, you know, in uh, public access in Los Angeles and everything. Right. And, and that really, now, how, how did that really help you as a narrative filmmaker later on and being able to evaluate your talent, being able to know and research who you're working with and research the subject matter, everything like that. How did that really help you become the director you became? I think that's a very good question. And a lot of people go, oh, come on, you made, uh, you know, you made documentaries. And, and when I first started, I came, I was trying to get gigs. I was trying to get a job mm -hmm. making narrative film. Nobody said, well, yeah, you might be able to elicit the innermost feelings and emotions from real people, but can you work with actors? And I was going, don't you understand? If I can get real people to lower their guard and actually reveal themselves, you know how difficult that is? That's impossible. Because everybody gets in front of the camera, they want you to think, oh, butter wouldn't melt in my mouth. I'm, I'm just the sweetest, nicest person. Bullshit. They're not sweet and nice. They're like everybody is. You got your good side, you got your bad side. In order to break that down and really see who's behind that facade, Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of skill. And that's what I used when I started making narrative filmmakers. But, you know, I make it narrative films. Mm -hmm. When I, uh, uh, the first, you know, like film of any length I made was on, on a, a LA poet named Charles Bukowski. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Very, very famous. Uh, I mean, a great writer, great and poet. And I love the YouTube, I saw on YouTube that when you went back to where you shot the documentary and everything right there in Los Angeles. Yep. Yeah. <laughs>
But, uh, you know, the, the fact is that, um, you know, Bukowski was not easy. He was a, he was a thorny, difficult individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had huge respect for his writing. He deserved, he was a true artist, a working class artist. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you learn from that. I did all these different documentaries where I was trying to get past all that, those roadblocks put up on my way. And when you know how to do that, you know how to elicit that and get the truth. Then when you work with actors, it's not that hard because guess what? That's what actors are trained for. That's what they're trying mm-hmm. to give you. Yeah. Now, you, it also helps in the fact that sometimes actors want to act, which mm-hmm. is not true. They yeah. say, I'll just put my artifice up, and you go, well, no, that's bullshit. Let's get past that and try to get to something real inside. You have to and, embody embody everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's and, – and so my, my documentary training, that's all I had, was – uh, very helpful, I think. And what I always tried to do was to go for realistic performances. I don't, I you know my films don't have kind of arch, over the top, uh, you know, set satiristic performances. Mm-hmm. You know, they they try to be uh, nuanced and try to you know have you believe the character on screen. That's so right. I don't care whether it's you know Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, an officer and a gentleman, mm-hmm. or it's uh, you know, when it comes down to it, Jamie Foxx and Ray. Mm-hmm. And, or Pacino and Devil's Advocate or Luz Gossett yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> Pacino had a little bit of get home. He got a get out of jail card, free card, because he was playing the devil. That's right. He was, he was very cool throughout the whole thing. But at the end, he pulled off his, <laughs> he pulled off those covers and he came out with guns blazing. Crescendo. <laughs> That's why I said, you can go for it, Al. And now there's no no question. You're the devil, so go for it. He was brilliant. <laughs> it's indeed well. And and now I wanted to um talk with you about your career in filmmaking and and dealing with and dealing with actors, you know, um, which which is so important. And you said here, this is very interesting. It's very clearly stated in the film. You make your own choices, and what you're always fighting is ego. And you sometimes have to fight ego of actors. That's they have to have an ego, basically, you know, to really kind of uh, motivate themselves to be able to to execute the role. Um, but talk about that, like how you've been able to gain the trust of tremendous actors like Al Pacino, like uh, like uh, Robert De Niro, like Jamie Foxx, et cetera, et cetera. How you're able to communicate and 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 adapt to each of their personalities? It's it's. You know, my job as a director, I mean, I know the camera. I know what lenses to put on the camera. I know the style I want. But as I said, what I'm looking for is I'm not interested in hanging from my feet with a camera in my hand and swinging around so that people go, oh, wow, look at that directorial technique. That, that, that to me, takes you out of the movie. I'm a storyteller. That's and if there's a story that I want to tell, the, 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 the tools, the nuances are the actor's. That's the way you tell it because people are sitting in there. They want to be entertained, but they also want to kind of get out of their chair and float under the screen and say, I believe this. This is really happening. I'm involved. Mm-hmm. So you got to do that with the actors and uh, getting their complicity, getting them to collaborate with you is a big deal. And different, different actors work entirely different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really do. And uh, you've got to, it. And sometimes you know, you are working with two actors in a scene that have entirely different styles and paces yeah. and points of view. When I say points of view, artistic points of view. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all trying to get the same thing, but it's not easy. You know, you work with Al Pacino, Al will give you a, a fantastic take on take one, take two, take three, take four. He does it differently. Um, when I was working with he and Keanu, Keanu was fantastic in the movie. But Keanu didn't, you know, he had his own perception and unfortunately it was different than mine. So I, I'd have to work till take seven before I could break him of that old thing and go into something new. Now, I don't want to be controversial here because I'm I, I, the, the performance on the screen is Keanu's, not mine, mm-hmm. not mine at all. Um, and he did a terrific job. But sometimes the director and the actor have to kind of dance a while. Meanwhile, I got Pacino there who could easily say, fuck you guys, you know. <laughs> I, I gave my stuff, but you know, Al's not that way. That's Al right. loved that 
actors. He loved uh, Keanu. They collaborated well together. Mm -hmm. And so he just, you know, gave him a chance to play around a little bit more from his side. You know, you, you, you hope you have generous actors mm -hmm. because uh, sometimes, and Al knew exactly what was going on and he, and, and he encouraged it. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, actors, again, we're talking about egos. Um, sometimes it's your ego as the director, which doesn't belong and you're being destructive and that's not good. Mm -hmm. uh, but oftentimes, sometimes it can be an actor because actors get a lot of smoke blown at them. You know, that, why is this movie being made? It's being made because you got this star. Is mm -hmm. it going to be because the, the script is great, the story is fantastic, the cinematography is cool, my, my vision from a directing point of view? No, it's only getting made because of that actor. Well, when you have that happen, and that's Hollywood's name, that's the game. Mm -hmm. If you're that actor, you go, hey, let me, let me, uh, you know, put my muscle in here and demand this and demand that. And it's not, I think, the way films should get made, uh, because it's hard enough. It's you know, when you make a good film, it's a miracle. But if you've got to make a good film in spite of that, where you've got somebody saying, I'm not coming out of my trailer or I don't, I'm not going to do over the shoulders. Let some, let somebody else do it. Uh, you know, that that's taking away from their fellow actors, right? That's right. Uh, none of the, luckily most of the people I work with in my career have never done that. And, and I have a lot of time for most of the actors in my films mm -hmm. uh, because they understand, you know, you can't, nobody acts alone. Mm -hmm. you you decide you're going to get up there. I'm so big and mighty. I don't really care about communing with the people on screen with me. It ain't going to work. Mm -hmm. The audience smells it. They smell the stink. Yes. And uh, it, you, you need to engage with the person you're on screen with. And uh, then you can kind of see chemistry happen. That's so right. the people who think they can do it alone are full of shit and the audience knows it. Mm, and that's right. And that's a great thing, because I, I know there was situations with Officer and Gentleman, with Richard Gere and Deborah Winger, having your back, you know, with the studios were not satisfied with how you were directing the film. And, and the same with Devil's Advocate, too, with Al Pacino having your back. So that's a great thing, how that that you're able to that, that gain that trust in the fact that you're able to communicate and be honest, but also be nurturing, yeah. too. Well, it's, it is it is interesting, you know. And Officer and Gentleman is my second film, and and yeah, mm -hmm. they they uh, they they didn't they they were giving me a lot of heat. I didn't realize that it was actually uh, Richard and Deborah and Lou Gossett, Lou Gossett Jr. Mm -hmm. you know, who won an Oscar, won, won an Oscar as well. Mm -hmm. But but they basically said, you know, you take Taylor out of this, and we're not doing it, which saved my ass. Mm -hmm. It saved my ass. Now, did they tell me they did it? No. Yeah. Uh, because that was, that would have been, you know, kind of making a, an already bad situation worse. But, you know, it's when you have a relationship that's, that's working and, you know, when, when you're out on the set, you know, people are back in the studio and they got everything on their mind. They're looking at your dailies. They, they are, you know, they're half the time they're on the phone. They're not really engaged in what's up there. They mm -hmm. say, oh, I saw dailies today. They sucked. Really? You know what I had in mind? Um, and uh, they didn't ask I, you anything. They just say it. They didn't ask, like, in, in that instance where you have those situations, you know, and later with Devil's Advocate, it was uh, Pacino and Keanu mm -hmm. that, that stood up. I think that, that those are the moments because they're there. They know what's going on. Mm -hmm. They see the things you're dealing with every day, the weather that comes in. You know, you, you think, I mean, I had one day I was shooting outside in a very crucial scene mm -hmm. and the weather dropped 40 degrees in an hour. <sighs> 40 degrees in an hour. And I've got people wearing thin outfits. It was, went from, it went, literally went from 70 down to 30. And this is like early evening time, around early evening when it started. It was an evening thing. Right? New York. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, it was, it was a disaster. But I got blamed for it. Didn't matter. They didn't give a shit about that weather. They said, you know, it was your fault. Well, listen, you go through those things. People don't need to, you know, the, the bottom line of it is you finish the movie and you, um, you, can't, you can't apologize. You can't stand in the lobby and say, oh, you don't have to understand when people come walking out saying, oh, that smelled. 
you know, you can't say, uh, mm-hmm. well, you have to understand what happened. No, you got to get up there. You got to, you got to, you got to sacrifice and you got to go for it. And if you get your teeth kicked in, you get your teeth kicked in. Nobody knows except the people that are out there. And, and when you do it, and it was interesting on an officer and gentleman is case in point. Mm-hmm. I finished the movie. I didn't get along with the producer. Uh, he told very bad stories about me. Uh, I came back and I, I know they threatened to fire me. Nobody knew they'd seen the dailies. No one thought the movie was any good. They had all these other movies. They thought were going to, they made seven films at, at the same time that were going to be really great. Nobody's paying any attention. And, um, you know, all I can do is put my head down and, and make my movie. That's right. So at the end, they screened all these seven pictures, um, at the Paramount studio for all the, the ad agencies who were going to go out and, sell those movies mm-hmm. and my my film was last and they'd seen some real stinkers <laughs> you know it's nothing nothing tougher for a salesman to go oh god i've got to sell this and there's nothing that uh that i'm going to be able to sell mm-hmm. my film was last and i screened my movie i was doing i hadn't really mixed it yet i was doing the sound in the back of the thing mm-hmm. it finished and all the people in this theater was packed theater got up and turned around and gave me a standing ovation. I couldn't believe it. And it was the first moment that Paramount understood that they had a film. The word traveled. They said, you know, these hard-ass PR people who are really as hard as nails, Mm -hmm. they were over the moon for this film. And they went, that film? Are you kidding? (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to have, of course, they would never admit it, but after they beat the shit out of you for the whole time, then at the end, you know, you they'll take total credit for the success of your movie. <laughs> well, and I, I bet you the scene where Richard Gere carried uh, Deborah Winger out, and I remember you said you had this, you had one chance to shoot that, you know, that one scene. They didn't want to. They didn't want to, uh, they didn't want to shoot it. And actually, I don't think Richard wanted to shoot it either. I mean, it, you know, it's it's the writer. The writer had done this. It's a you know, I I questioned. I didn't know whether it would work or not. But I had a good relationship with the writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I committed to do the script. I said I'm going to shoot it. Well, the producer said, you know, we're not going to spend the time doing that. I said, hey, it's in the script. I'm shooting it. So I had one shot. But the reason that I knew, and I didn't know it until that day, I was in this factory. I was in a paper bag factory. Mm-hmm. Spokane, Washington. <laughs> and all, the people that worked, you know, at those assembly line things. Where well, Gonzaga, whip- the great Gonzaga University is. <laughs> this, um, these women were all they're bagging up paper bags. The machine to do it. They put a thing on it, mm-hmm. push it through. So they were all working class women, tough working class women in Washington State. And I literally had to come in and they moved them away. I put Deborah Winger and Lisa Blount and Grace Zabriskie at these machines. Mm-hmm. Richard's in the back. He's going to walk around. I did one rehearsal and I did, I shot it once. That was it. But when I rehearsed it, we'd taken these women. They were standing in the back. These are, these are tough working class women. But of course, there's a movie here. They mm-hmm. saw this guy walk in in a white uniform. <laughs> and walk up to somebody who was dressed like they were in a kind of green sweatshirt and Levi's and, you know, them. Mm-hmm. And he kisses her and picks her up. And I looked, I, I, you know, I'm looking this way because I'm focusing. I'm going to have one chance to get this shot. This is just the rehearsal. I heard this noise and I turned around and these women were applauding and crying. They were crying. Wow. wow. And I went, this sequence is going to work. Regardless of what anybody says, this sequence is going to work because those tough rods, if they were touched emotionally and it made them both laugh, applaud, and cry at the same time, there's power here. So I shot it. I, you know, Then when I cut it together, guess what? The studio couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, that's called being out there on the line and seeing it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And Taylor, there's um, a film that that Dolores Claiborne, I mean, Kathy Bates and Jennifer Jason Lee. I mean, that film is chilling to me to this day, you know. Um, now, you know, you're known for for directing great, you know, mostly male main characters and everything like that. But this film with two powerful female actresses and Jennifer Jason Lee, I was wondering where she was at. I just saw White Boy Rick the other day and I was like, oh, this she's okay, where's she been? But 
Jennifer's yeah. always been she's always been great. But there's also one other woman, Judy Parfit, who was playing Vera. Oh, that's in that, she was in yes. English. Yes, three right. women. Well, you know, it was that was my opportunity to do uh, a, a film about women, and that and that's really what it was. Mm -hmm. But remember, my mother was a, one tough woman. She was wow, a waitress. Right. She was, uh, you know, cancer survivor. She worked her ass off, Man. put me through school. Uh, and, you know, never made very much money in her life. She was a very Dolores Claiborne type person. Mm. And, uh, you know, so it was a chance. And also I had, a, a, by the way, a great script by Tony Gilroy. Great script. Oh, what a great writer. Yes, indeed. Uh, yep. Really, mm -hmm. really great. But, and, and of course, realizing it was from a Stephen King novel. Yeah. You know, Stephen King, the, the father of the macabre, but he can <laughs> write working class people like nobody's business. That's right. <laughs> And so I'm I'm up there working, and we shot it in Nova Scotia, which is right across from Maine, which is his, mm -hmm. his, his beautiful, uh, you know, beautiful manner. area. But you know, when you had those women, then they were so great, and it was a tough. I also had a you know young the young uh, girl that played Jennifer Jason Lee's girl, Ellen Muth. I mm -hmm. mean, they were all all four of those women, and Ellen was just becoming a woman. Mm -hmm. Were really really good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you listen, you know, because you're not um, a woman. <laughs> I wasn't saying do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. I mean, I knew visually, but I listened to my actresses and they were, you know, and this is a tough subject, you know, I mean, child molestation is a horrible subject for a mother. Yes. Right? Oh my God. And, uh, and, and, and of course for the victim. You know, mm -hmm. but the fact is that I, I'm very, very proud of that film. That film, you know, stands up and Stephen King was one of his favorite adaptations, which yes. was really, really great. So in reality, um, you get something and it's again, collaborative. Like I said, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not taking credit for Tony Gilroy's script. Mm -hmm. It was really good. And Stephen King's inspiration or Kathy's acting, you know, to me, Woo greatest compliment you know Kathy was tough because I think she had a very difficult time with her father I was daddy on the picture and you know we we you know I'm not I I wasn't telling her what to do I was just trying to guide her right mm -hmm. but afterwards um you know later uh, she told me it was her favorite performance she's ever given mm -hmm. and she wasn't even nominated she wasn't that's why I said that's... we started this conversation about people who deserve and uh, yeah, she won for Misery and she was great in Misery. Which was another Stephen King story. <laughs> but I'll tell you, Kathy Bates' performance in Dolores Claiborne, it doesn't get any better than that. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Jason Lee, fantastic. Neither one of them were nominated. Wow, that's... Uh, so, you know, you, you know that when people are up there getting awards, it's great that they're getting it, but don't believe it too much because you know that there's great work that other people did that same year that nobody either didn't see it, they didn't get it, whatever mm -hmm. it was. You know, over the course of time, how many great films? I mean, Citizen Kane, that I, people and say the greatest film ever made. Did it win? Gave a shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. And Orson Welles, that still gets to me. He was 25 when he did that film. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's amazing. Wow. Um, but now, now I wanted to, now music. Music is very big in your life. And you talked about there was a quote that I, I that really that really got to me in a great way. And when you said, you know, the director's job should give you a sense of music without drawing attention to itself. You know, that's really deep. Now, I wanted to ask you two questions. How does the rhythm of music dictate your approach as a director? And number two, are you going to do a musical? <laughs> <laughs> you got to. <laughs> My first, uh, my first film, The Idolmaker, was basically a musical. It was about the making of teenage idols. It had a lot of original. Jeff Perry wrote a lot of great original songs. Uh huh. And there's that. Uh, Frankie Avalon, you know, the manager yeah. of Frankie Avalon. Yep. Mm -hmm. right. it was about. And right. uh, and and Ray, you know, no no musical is going to have more music than than Ray. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, you know, so yeah, you know, the idea of doing a musical, I've toyed with it a couple of times. I did a I did a musical play uh, called Louis and Keeley Live at the Sahara. It was a, 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 oh. a, a show about Louis Prima and Keeley Smith, oh. which was really, really a cool thing. Okay. Uh, when was that? But, when was that? 
Oh, it was about five years ago. Oh, I, I would have loved to see was, that. Uh, you know, it played in Los Angeles, then it played in Chicago. I mean, it got unbelievable reviews, mm-hmm. and it was really good. Unfortunately, they, it got into some rights legal issues, not with Louis and Keeley, but with one investor. Okay. And it screwed us up. Uh, I would love to have seen it go to Broadway because mm-hmm. I think it was worthy, and it's a great dramatic story, a real Pygmalion uh, mm-hmm. you know, piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis Prima was an amazing musician, and yes. Keely Smith had a great world. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, that that process in terms of the timing, you know, I I always use music in my films in a in a you know both from a score point of view. Mm-hmm. Some of my scores have been nominated for Academy Awards. Yes, um, which is great. You know, Jack Nietzsche's score from Officer and Gentleman got nominated. The mm-hmm. song won, and the song you know from Against All Odds won. Oh and yes. It, Phil Collins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but but the fact is that um, that process, and and then it, you know I had another song uh, by Lionel Richie that won, mm-hmm. uh, "Say You Say Me" oh. from White Nights. And White Nights, I'd see. I would call White Nights a dance musical because uh, you know I had the True. two greatest dancers in the world. Ooh, that's right. Uh, you know, Gregory Hines and, and Mikhail Baryshnikov. I mean, yes. in their own style, Greg and Tap and Misha and Ballet, I had the two greatest dancers ever. And there was a lot of dance in that movie. But it mm-hmm. wasn't like proscenium-like. You know, it was, they, they danced within the plot of the film. And it had a, a strange kind of uh, espionage you know, plot. Yeah. But, but it was still, I think, unique and really interesting to do. So, you know, the, you, you do these kinds of things. I, I always get, I'm very proud of those moments when you have music in a dramatic scene mm-hmm. that adds to the dramatic scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, like in an officer and a gentleman, um, there's a scene in, in there where Deborah Winger and Richard Gere have broken up and it's their relationship is over yeah. and uh, they see each other in a bar. She's there with a, got a date and he's there with friends and uh, Mark Knopfler, who had written this this uh, this great song called "Tunnel of Love," mm-hmm. with uh, Dire Straits, uh-huh. and it has this really interesting interlude in it with the guitar solo, and uh, and she goes over to the jukebox and puts it in. And he walks over and they start talking, and it's the classic situation of people who have deep feelings for each other, but it's very sensitive, so they don't say very much. Mm-hmm. You know, how are you? I'm good. I did this. Oh yeah. You can tell under the surface that they're both being ripped apart. Then I use that song to play underneath it. And it's really, it really works. I didn't use score there. Score would have been hammy, but that song, because it's right next to a jukebox, Mm -hmm. just scored the the film and that scene in such a fantastic way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've done that in in films. When I do something like that, I love the fact that, you know, in Ray, you take some performance and then you let the, let this the song continue mm-hmm. and the song continues under dramatic scene right. you know when Anjou Ellis is leaving uh Ray and and mm-hmm. and the, the music plays out over her you know packing up and and going away she's being replaced by Margie Hendrix mm-hmm. who's played by Regina King mm-hmm. the music the music starts performance and then goes or another sequence in which it, the music starts and then you come to performance after it's already used, been used as score. Those are some of the fun, the most fun things for me because, you know, people go, well, you just, you just pop in, you know, performance. No, you mm-hmm. use the music both coming in and going out. Let the audience feel it. And then you, you, the audience thinks they've heard tons of music when in fact you've actually put drama in there. Thank you all for listening to part one of the 42nd edition of Where They At with the prolific filmmaker, Taylor Hackford. And wow, what a, what a conversation I had with him. And part two will be coming up very soon in which we talk about more about his career, especially uh, his legendary film of Ray. And we also get into our mutual passion for boxing as well. So it's great to uh, talk with Mr. Taylor Hackford and you'll hear more great insight, reflections and memories from this gentleman. So if you want to hear past episodes of Where They At, make sure to hit me up on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, as well as Catropolis Radio Network. So that's C-A-S-T-R-O-P-O-L-I-S dot net, in which my podcast actually streams every Monday night at 8 p.m. And you can also listen to past episodes, all the past episodes, whenever you want at your leisure on the website at cartropolis.net. And make sure to subscribe and or rate the podcast. Thank you all for your support already for doing that and looking forward to have more listeners listen to these riveting conversations with these luminous individuals from mostly the world of sports. But as I said, I do talk with some uh, entertainers and creative artist as well so also if you like the music that you hear go to my website n-a-b-a-t-e-i-s-l-e-s that's nabateals.com to listen to tracks from my album eclectic excursions as well as a track that i co-created with hip-hop artist niles and featuring beth griffin manley who was a contestant on The Voice season 16 as well. And we uh, pay tribute to the great legendary Chadwick Boseman for this track and creating for him for what he stood for, not just in front of the camera, but also behind the scenes as well, what he did for people and helping people and being such a humanitarian. So thank you all once again for listening to Where They At, I'm Nabate Owls, and part two of my conversation with Taylor Hackford is coming soon. Take care, everybody. Be good to each other and treat each other with kindness and respect. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye, everybody.